No, we're excited to talk to you, Robert. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. One, we only have one rule on this podcast. Yeah. No fucking cussing. I, I will not fucking put up with any fucking cussing on n- none of that shit, okay? Well, here's a funny story on the cussing <laughs> line. There's this show Coast to Coast. Do you know Coast to Coast? Coast to Coast? That's the one it's that's a, uh, AM radio, I believe. And it yeah, has, okay. Yeah, like the UFOs yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? And they do a lot of stuff with like UFOs and crazy stuff. Right. Um, but he had me on for this book for Corporate Spying. And I said, and he loved me. He had me on for Malibu Burning too. And he loved me. And he, he was, everything was great. And I said bullshit on that show. Uh-huh. And I mean, like, even though, he, you know, he didn't like disconnect me, but I could tell it was, it was like over. Like, oh no. I, that's AM radio. You cannot curse. Uh-huh. And I mean, and I'm like, you could say all these crazy things about, you know, uh, you know, conspiracies, left wing, right wing, whatever. You could say all this crazy stuff. You could talk about aliens, but you can't say bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense uh, to me. I, yeah. So uh, coast to coast, I'm out. <laughs> oh no. Oh yeah. I remember that. I think who, who was the, who was the host years ago? Art, was it Art Bell? Yeah. Yeah. Art Bell. Art Bell. Yeah. yeah. I remember my dad was like, oh, I was listening to Art Bell at work today. He's like, there's this guy that says he's got a demon uh, in a cage in his basement. And and my dad's flipping out. Like my dad is just like all in on this. And he's like, and if you have a fax machine, you can fax Art Bell and he'll fax you the picture of this demon. And I work with a guy and this is in the eighties. I work with the guy who has a fax machine. I'm going to get the picture tomorrow, Brian. And, uh, you could not make out that it was a demon. It was probably his kid. <laughs> it was probably his kid in some kind of like costume or something. It was ridiculous. That is hilarious. Bonus episode. There's already like 7 million podcasts talking about pop culture and all that. Makes us happy like shooting at a womp rat. But it's all been done before. And we don't want to be a copycat. We're the leftovers picking up the scraps. Dropped by the cool kids. It, it, it's a trap. Good at toss it, good at Do we love it? Hey, let's face it. Can't erase it. Let's embrace the Tupperware party. Subculture spill over like a vulture. Carry over counterculture. Push over pop culture. Hey, welcome to a bonus episode of Pop Culture Leftovers. Really excited to bring you this bonus episode. It was myself and then Dan Ramirez from the Heroes of Noise podcast. And we had the pleasure of speaking to Robert Kerback. He is the author of Ruse, Lying the American Dream from Hollywood to Wall Street. This is based on his real life story. This is a memoir. This book is amazing. You can get it from his website, robertkerbeck.com. Click the buy now, buy the book. I'm telling you, you will not be disappointed. This guy lived a life that many of us could only dream about. It's stuff that you've seen in like, you know, you can only see in like movies like The Wolf of Wall Street and Catch Me If You Can. And he spent time as a successful actor. Uh, he's spent time with Paul Newman, George Clooney, Jennifer Lopez. Uh, he's got some in. You got to get the book. He's got interactions with Kevin Spacey. He spent time on a series that a lot of our listeners are familiar with, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. He was also in Monsters. Uh, We don't talk about this on the podcast, but he hung out with George Lucas in Tokyo, as well as the Yakuza Godfather. Insane. Just insane. And to top it off, 
he was he danced for two straight days in an exercise video with O.J. Simpson the week before the murders. And we do talk about that in this episode. It's unreal. This book is amazing. Ruse, Lying, The American Dream from Hollywood to Wall Street. Go to robertkerbeck.com and uh, click the buy now and buy this book. You can also get it on Audible. This was a fantastic interview, and I hope to have this guy back on the podcast sometime. All right, guys, enjoy. We are joined today by uh, Mr. Robert Kerbeck, the author of Ruse, Lying, the American Dream from Hollywood to Wall Street. And uh, I'm telling you, when uh, I started reading about your life, I was kind of... uh, First off, I was kind of blown. I was blown away. I was like, this cannot be real. Um, (laughs) And then I was just like, oh, my gosh, I have so many questions that I would like to ask him. And I'm sure this guy has a ton of stories to tell. And um, yeah, I really just uh, let our audience know who you are, what the book is about. And uh, yeah, we can get uh, love to dissect this a little bit more. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me, Brian. Absolutely. Nice to meet you, Dan. Nice Um, to meet you, too. Yeah. So my My book, Ruse, is basically the story of how a wannabe actor became the world's greatest corporate spy. And um, I didn't, you know, you know, I I didn't graduate from high school saying, boy, I I really wish I could find a career in corporate espionage. Um, But I wanted to be an actor and actors need survival jobs. And when I moved to Manhattan, you know, I was I didn't have the patience to kind of be a waiter. I wasn't a late night guy. So bartending was out. And uh, this buddy of mine had this job and he he kind of said something about it. And then he, he shut up right away. And, and I said, you know, dude, I'm broke. What's going on with this job? You know, hook me up, get me an interview. And so he did. And I went to the Upper East Side, uh, you know, to this woman's apartment. And, you know, I was living in Hill's Kitchen in this cave with three other people. And I go up to the Upper East Side, doorman building. I get sent up to the penthouse. This woman opens the door. As I recall, she had a cigarette and a martini. And um, she ushers me into the nicest most beautiful, luxurious apartment I've ever seen. And right away, I knew whatever she did, it was lucrative. And um, she does this strange interview with me. She never asks me anything about my skills, anything about my, you know, my background. She sends me on my way. And uh, my buddy calls me and he says, "Uh, you got hired, but don't get too excited because she hires everyone because no one is able to do this job. And the very next day, I went out to Brooklyn and started training. Um, you know, I go to this fourth floor walk up in Brooklyn. I knock on this door. This beautiful woman opens it. She says, come on in. You'll work in my bedroom. And up until this point, I still had no idea what, what the job was. And then I began to think it was something, <laughs> you know, it was, it was something really interesting. Uh, and um, this woman takes me and it sits me down at this desk in her bedroom and begins to explain that we use our acting skills to call corporations and pretend to be people that were not using personas, personalities, different voices, accents to get people in corporations to tell us things that they definitely should not. Wow. So you're constantly trying to like adapt to everyone you're talking to and like on the fly, literally. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it was it was like an, it was every call was different. Every call was like an improvisational scene, you know, an acting class. Any of your listeners that have ever been in an acting class, sometimes you do improvisational scenes. Every call was like that. Now, you would you do your homework in advance. You would do research about 
what you thought would work and why you thought it would work. And we had all these different kind of go-to ploys that we developed over the years. Um, but still, you had to, you know, listen to the other person. You know, I, I, I say that uh, the thing that makes a great corporate spy and any great liar or, or con person is not just the gift of gab. It's actually, I think, even more important is the ability to listen, mm. right, and, and, and to read people. And, and, of course, we were reading people for the most part over the phone. We did go in person sometimes as well. But as you can imagine, that was even more intense and even more dangerous. And we began to learn, like we went to a couple of conferences, we went to a couple of bars, we went to a couple of parties where these corporation executives were. But we began to learn we could get more over the phone using the anonymity of a phone call, right? Because we could be from anywhere. And, and you know, these corporations, as, as you all know, they're, they're, they have offices everywhere. You know, this is Gerhardt calling from the office in Frankfurt, Germany. We have the <laughs> European Union regulators here this week, and they need some information from the States, right? So we could be from Dublin. We could be from right. Tokyo. We could be from London. And, you know, the person would answer the phone and go, oh, hey, I, hey, Gerhard. Oh, my God, I got this guy from the German, from the office in Berlin on the phone. Yeah, hey, Gerhard, what's going on? How can I help you? Right? Everybody wants to be a good te- corporate teammate, right? And so... And another thing that was strange is the more outlandish the ploy was, the crazier the ploy was, the more believable believable it was, which is kind of counterintuitive, but it was true every time. The crazier your story, the more believable, because people are like, what are the odds that somebody's calling me and pretending to have a German accent? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, it's it's ridiculous, right? And then those people would would tell you stuff because they wanted to help you. It sounds like people are kind of like wanting to believe that this is like real. Like, oh, wow, what, the, you're calling for me? Like, they're actually thankful that you're calling them. It's, yeah. It, yeah. Right. right. Well, think about it in corporate America. You know, most jobs are not extremely exciting. Most jobs are tedious. You yeah. know, you're doing the same job day after day. And all of a sudden you get a guy. You get a call from a guy in Dublin with an Irish accent or uh, somebody in London with an English accent or somebody in Frankfurt with a German accent. It, it's just like a day changer. You're like, oh, wow, this is different. What's going on? You know, and we we utilize that to our advantage um, to, to get people to tell us stuff. Can you give us like a taste of like somebody like high level that you were able to find out something? Um, I don't know, extremely uh, top secret that maybe they shouldn't have been yeah. telling you over the phone. Yeah, yeah, all the time. I mean, so people say, well, you know, what information were you after? And I say, whatever our clients wanted to know, right? Whatever our clients, who were the biggest companies in the world, wanted to know about their rivals, who were the biggest companies in the world. Uh, you know, I, I describe it as, you know, I, I'm a big football fan, you know, go Philadelphia Eagles, fly Eagles, fly, 5-0. and oh. And um, I describe it as what would teams pay if they could get the playbook on their opponent the day before the game, two days before the game, if they knew every formation, if they knew every play, right. They knew every, you know, cadence, you know, if they knew it all, how valuable would that be for them in terms of winning the game? Mm -hmm. Right. And so we would find out, you know, you know, remember back in the day in the nineties and two thousands, when I was kind of at the height of my spying career, you know, LinkedIn really didn't exist, you know, or didn't exist. And so we were kind of, in one sense, we were LinkedIn. We would find out the people that worked at firms, what the organizational chart looked like, 
who the top producers were at a firm, because every corporation, when they're hiring people and interviewing people, everybody says that they're the best person at their firm. We would find out really who was the best person, who the rock stars were, who the top producers were. And you can imagine that's incredibly valuable information, right? We all know who the top quarterbacks in the NFL are because we can look at the statistics. But when you're a corporation, you don't know what the statistics are of the top people at other firms. We would get those statistics. Um, and that's something your listeners may not know. Every corporation rates their employees. They have an internal ranking system, and most employees don't even know it. Hmm. Um, but they they rank you. And, and sometimes the rankings are in obvious ways, how much they pay you, what your bonus is, right? Um, but there are other rankings, too, and we would find those out. And then we would layer on top of that if the company was acquiring another company, if the company was expanding, if the company was attract, you know, contracting. And along the way, having all these conversations, we would begin to find out salacious information, too. Oh, did you hear so-and-so uh, got arrested for drunk driving? Did you hear so-and-so left his wife for his assistant? Right. So we would learn all these other things, too, that oftentimes we weren't even going after. But you get somebody talking on the phone and it's incredible what they will tell you. And that's stuff that you could probably use in one way or the other. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, we really uh, we really did not use the salacious information. You know, I mean, in the book, in Ruse, I talk about, you know, kind of the the ethical question of the job and how I struggled with that. Um, and I don't recommend my career choice. But uh, it is a hell of a crazy story. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a lot of fun. You know, the book kind of reads like a spy novel because there's all this intrigue and danger. Um, but I think that um, there were certain lines I never wanted to cross. So I never traded on any of the information that I got. Because mm -hmm. for me, insider trading was like, I'm not doing that because I feel like that's, you know, I mean, even 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 Martha Stewart went to jail for insider trading. Right. And so I didn't want to do that. And then also some of that personal information i didn't want to cross into that you know so we really focused on just corporate information because i my, my theory was one of the reviews of the book said uh they described it as shank the man and rake in the bucks and that's kind of how i felt like i'm like you know well you know boohoo for goldman sachs or boohoo for you know whatever what other whatever firm we're getting information out of because so many of these firms have been you know, right in the middle of you know, a myriad number of scandals where they ripped off customers and consumers. So I didn't feel too bad about that. You've got this like level, you've got this level of anonymity over the phone. You know, they can't see yeah. you. They, they're, they're hearing a voice. Since that time, have you actually met face to face with someone <laughs> that, that you, that you've done this ruse with over the phone or? You know, I never have. I never have, uh, you know, um, but what was amazing to me, there's one relationship that I developed in the book because sometimes what would happen is someone would, um, believe me, um, and, uh, and oftentimes begin to like me and mm. we begin to develop a, you know, what I call we become telephone buddies, right? And so I would call them back. And now, because they believe me, I didn't have to prove how, who I was anymore. I would just call up and go, hey, it's it's Steve or hey, it's Gerhard or hey, it's Anthony or whatever name I was using. And so then we became friends. And I had a couple of relationships that went on for a long period of time for years. And I would begin to learn things about these people. And then they would begin to learn things about me. Now, it wasn't the real me. It was the character that I had created. But I remember one of the phone calls, and, and this is at the end of the book, um, 
the woman is basically leaving the firm and she's basically say, saying she's sad she's not going to talk to me anymore. And she said, you were one of my favorite people at the company. Hmm. I mean, pretty incredible, right? I mean, yeah. that I, who wasn't really who I said I was and had never met this person, was one of their favorite people, which doesn't say a lot for corporate America in terms of friendships and relationships. Oh, yeah. It's got to be very cutthroat, especially at the high level of some of these people that you're talking to. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. The, the two industries that we work the most in, uh, in terms of spying, uh, are pretty obvious. Uh, um, Wall Street and uh, Silicon Valley technology, right? And those areas are so incredibly cutthroat it's unbelievable like information is literally currency yeah uh, wow um did you ever get kind of like tied up on the phone like caught like you know like like that's what i wanted to ask yeah just like totally maybe i don't know if you like uh forgot that you you were calling somebody and you forgot like oh i'm supposed to be this person or if they (laughs) or if they just flat out caught you yeah well uh, great questions i always Every single call wrote my name on the side of, the, of a piece of paper in front of me, the name that I was saying I was. And I might even write another sentence about why I said I was calling, like just so I had it there that if all of a sudden I got mm-hmm. a little lost, that I, I, I wouldn't make that mistake. Um, but uh, we were we called it getting busted. We got busted many times. People were like, no, I don't believe you. No, I'm not. You know, whatever they would say. And oftentimes what we would do in those situations is we we would understand that person, no matter what, was not going to give us the information. But what we didn't want them to do was to spread the word that there was some spy calling for information. We didn't want them sending out a mass email or you know, doing anything to let people know in their area, because now we were going to have to get that information from someone else. And so what we would do is we would, tr- we would basically try to put that person to sleep. So this person would say, you know what, you know what, you know what, if you are who you say, I want you to send me an email, I want you to put it in an email, and it better come from the company email, da, da, da. I'd say, okay, no problem, no problem. I said, do me a favor. I said, give me an hour, I'll get it out to you. I'll answer all your questions. Well, yeah, no, I want that. Yeah, no, 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 I'm going to send it. Don't worry about it. I said, I'll have it to you in an hour. Worst case scenario, I'll have it to you by the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Well, I I really want it. And I said, worst case, you know, if I can't get it out to you today, I, I promise you, you'll have it first thing in the morning at the latest. I promise you first thing in the morning, you'll have it. And they go, okay, great. Okay, okay. I feel better about it now. And that'd be the end of it. Well, now I bought myself the rest of the day that they're 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 not worried about it now. They're wait they're 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 expecting that email to come. It's only tomorrow morning when all of a sudden they go, Hey, what happened to that email? Uh oh, uh oh. But it it bought us time to then try to get the information from a different source. Okay. What what drove you? What what was your drive while doing this? Was it the money or was it like not only the money, but with you being an aspiring actor, it's like, I get to also, guess what? I'm making money. I'm finding these things out, but I'm also working on my craft at the same time. Totally honing a skill. Yeah. You know, I, I never, I never thought about that. I mean, I knew the accents were helpful uh, that, that part I, I knew. Um, but you know, for a long time I was getting, uh, and you'll, you'll laugh. Uh, I was getting paid $8 an hour to do this. Oh, job. wow. And e- even back in the day, it was very low paying mm-hmm. job, but it was enough. And the big thing about the job was you were doing it from your home. You were doing it over the phone. You could set your own hours. And, you know, of course, now we're in an era coming out of COVID where so many people work from home. But, you know, back in the day, nobody could work for home, from home. 
And so as an actor, that was invaluable. You could work for two or three hours, go to an audition, come back, work two or three hours, go to another audition. And so it was, you know, it was a great job for an actor. Um, so even though the pay was low, the flexibility was a big bonus. So I wasn't doing it for money. It was just a survival job. And I was working as an actor. You know, I was doing, um, you know, big uh, uh, theater, sh- you know, shows in New York. Um, you know, um, I did a play in New York and afterwards, Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward came up to me and invited me to their home for the salon, um, and to read a part in a movie script playing the Paul Newman part in this movie. Um, I did plays with, you know, Callista Flockhart and I start in a play, um, off Broadway. And then I moved to Los Angeles and I did TV shows with, you know, George Clooney and, you know, all kinds of people. Um, so I was a working actor. So I kept going, look, this job is temporary. You know, I'm going to be done with it tomorrow, but, you know, it's paying the bills. And, you know, so it was never really about the money until kind of all of a sudden my acting career, which kind of kept going up, 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 Mm -hmm. up. And then all of a sudden, to my great surprise and shock, I didn't become a famous movie star. And all of a sudden my career went the opposite direction. And that was the time when all of a sudden I was like, okay, you know what? There all of a sudden more and more money started pouring into this spying world. And that was the time when I, I really kind of, you know, crossed over to the dark side. So when does it go from like $8 an hour to thousands, <laughs> to, million. to millions? Yeah. <laughs> to 2 million a year. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, it, it was, it was, you know, it, it really wasn't that gradual. It was fast. Um, so basically, you know, my acting career kind of started winding down in the late nineties. I did, a, I had a recurring part on a show called NYPD blue. I booked a couple of pilots um, the pilots never got picked up. I think I did four different pilots. And, you know, as a, as an actor back then, you know, you really needed, uh, you know, a, po- a show to, you know, and even today, you know, you need mm-hmm. a show to take off. Um, and, you know, basically a pilot gets bought, they make a series out of it. And now you're a series regular and the show runs for two, three, whatever number of seasons. And now you're established because you've done a TV series. So I did four pilots and none of them got picked up and made into a series. And that kind of, you know, when that happened, you know, I remember when I worked with George Clooney, he had done six pilots, none of which had been successful. Mm. And there's this conversation he he and I had, which is in Ruse, where he talks about uh, that he feels like when he gets hired, he's the kiss of death for a show and that every show he gets hired to be in, is do- he's, it's doomed and it's never going to go. And of course, right after that conversation, the next show he did was ER. Right. <laughs> yeah. And he and he never looked back. Right. Um so, uh, you know, I, I, I you know, it, I think that the amount of money just ratcheted up very quickly. And, you know, one year I was making, you know, 180,000 and the next year was 500,000. The next year was 1.1. The next year was 1.3. And then it was $2 million. A year. I mean, was there anybody that was doing this job that was even close to competing with those with the numbers <laughs> that you were able to pull in? No, no. I wanted to no. ask something and I don't want to keep going back to day one. But I am curious about something. Being that you were an aspiring actor, it, it draws to mind the a scene in uh, Wolf of Wall Street where they're starting to do the cold calling and yeah. people aren't really doing very well at it. But Jordan steps in, Jordan Belford steps in and shows them, hey, look, this is how it's done. And everyone's just yeah. like, you know, in awe of that. Did you have a similar experience? Is that another reason that helped you climb a little bit faster than some? Well, uh, in the beginning, I, I didn't do that uh, great at the job. And I love there's a line in uh, Wolf, um, that black phone equals money. <laughs> and I love that line because it was true for us, too, you know. And um, 
And I talk about the Wolf of Wall Street in the book because there were some similarities. You know, Jordan's first uh, brokerage was on the um, uh, like basically the parking lot of a used car lot. My father was a used car dealer. So we had a couple of things in common. But in the beginning, the woman that hired me, she had this little firm and she had four or five you know, actors, spies that worked for her. She only hired women. Um, and my buddy was the first man she ever hired because she didn't think that men made as good spies, um, you know, and and I'm sure that was from experience that she'd hired a couple of guys and none of them worked out. So she was like, I'm only going to hire women. But she hired my buddy and he kind of was hanging in there and then he got me the job. But in the beginning, the women were all better than we were. And I recently did an event with Valerie Plame. And Valerie um, is the former CIA agent that was outed by the Bush administration in 2003. And um, we were on this panel together. And um, I was saying something about how this woman, you know, uh, that started this spy company said women made the best spies. And Valerie said, of course, women make the best spies. And I said, well, you know, why is that? I never really understood it. And she said, women are more empathetic, which makes them better able to deflect and reflect than men, right? Men get their ego involved with women can be more chameleon like and kind of roll with the situation. And I think we saw that with the women that were training us to do the job. And so fortunately, we we had some, they, they basically taught us because they were better. And then all of a sudden, we had a breakthrough where we realized that the ploys that worked for the women didn't work for the men. The women would be receptionists, They'd be assistants and they'd be calling other receptionists and assistants and they'd go, oh, my God, my boss is so horrible. He's terrible. They'd fake crying. The assistant on the other end of the line would go, oh, my God, you poor thing. Uh, my boss is terrible, too. What, what's going on? Calm down. How can I help you? You know, we'll fix this. We'll get through this together. And I couldn't believe it. But these receptionists would then give, you know, the female spies all of this information. Well, when I would call the receptionist, they, they would the, the relationship was different. So what I began to do was go to the executives themselves. And a lot of times, uh, Wall Street and, and most firms, uh, assistants work a pretty straight day, nine to five. But executives stay later, right? Because they're working hard. It's competitive. Um, and so we would call after five o'clock and we would get the guys, the head of the department, you know, this SVP, the EVP. He would pick up his own line and we would be bro to bro, executive to executive. I'm an executive offsite here. You're an executive over there. And it was shocking to me, for at least for, the, for me, how much easier it was to get information from a male senior executive than it was for me to get um, information from a receptionist or, or, or an assistant. And remember back in the day, Wall Street and even Silicon Valley was geared uh, you know, m executives were more male than female. And, and, right. and I'm happy to report that that's changed today. But back in the day, there were definitely more men in in in, in higher in, you know, in higher roles. Interesting. Were, I mean, were there as far as like the pay structure, were there like you found out some massive information? I'm talking like information that will help the competitor was it was there like these insane bonuses that you would receive <laughs> like how does this work like you know you you're you're probably making the company way more money than you'll see but still they're paying they're compensating you i'm sure very well um right. what, 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 like how did you like did you know like oh my gosh this is 
this is my golden goose. Like this is, this is payday. This is Fort Knox. Like what I found out over the phone, like when you called them and let them know of this information that like, this is, this is a big payday. Like this is a big one. Yeah, I did. I did. Um, in general, what we did is we set, we had a fee structure that we set in advance. Like, so, so corporation would call me, they say, these are the things we want to know. And I'd say, okay, this is what it's going to cost you. You know, if in the course of finding out, that information, I found out some more, even more incredible information, which we often did. Mm-hmm. We didn't charge the client more. The client was just jumping up and down and they were unbelievably happy with us. And so then they gave us more and more work because these corporations were huge and they had, you know, it wasn't just one department that wanted to know about another department at an XYZ firm. You know, they had, you know, 170 departments that wanted to know about their competitors in every one of those departments. And then all of a sudden my name would be given to this department and that department. And all of a sudden I'd be getting all these calls and these people, you know, they, they no longer needed to vet me or be sure I could deliver. They knew it. And they were just like, Here, you know, we're hiring you. Um, I think the, one of the moments that really, it really came, uh, I really understood how valuable the information was. We were tasked to find out the name of this eight person trading team at a wall street bank. Now, you think, well, how hard can that be? Well, Steve Jobs, legendary CEO of Apple, mm-hmm. when he um, you know, had all these amazing products being developed and designed, he would not allow his designers and developers to be listed in the Apple directory because he knew how valuable that information was. If somebody could find out who it was, and imagine if you could poach one of the top designers of the iPad back in the day and get that person in the early days, how much would that have been worth, right? billions of dollars. So he understood that. And the same thing with these Wall Street firms, their traders were kept hidden, they were kept under wraps. A lot of times you couldn't, they didn't even have phones into the the areas. And um, so we were tasked with finding out this eight person team, uh, which of course, I found out. And later, I found out that that eight person team had made their firm the prior year, $1 billion in trading revenue in profit, $1 billion in profit. So imagine, so now if I, you know, basically if my client's able to poach one or two of those people from that desk, how much is that information worth? Some portion of a billion dollars. Wow. Wow. Um, to make it worth it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. So, well, I'm, I'm curious, it's like, how, <laughs> how illegal was this? Like, uh, you get, let's say it all comes down, like, Who's how illegal is this? <laughs> well, you know, when we when we first had the job, you know, we, we did it for a little while. And my buddy and I had that exact that exact same thought. And so we met with an attorney and the attorney said, um, you know, look, there's really no case law on this because, you know, the, the court, you know, we nobody's ever really caught a corporate spy before. Mm. But I can tell you it's in the gray, the dark gray. And he said, I'm here to tell you that, you know, an aggrieved corporation could definitely bring charges and, um, and, you know, you know, you, you're doing what you're doing. And so if you get caught, you're, you're going to go to jail. Um, that was basically the, the bottom line. And at one point, which I detail in the book, uh, my buddy and I, um, the authorities, and when I say the authorities, every authority, the U.S. Marshals, the Secret Service, the FBI, they were hunting for this man who at the time was the most famous hacker in America, maybe even the world. And they stumbled on our trail. And all of a sudden, they thought that we were this guy. Oh, wow. And 
they came to my buddy's apartment in Brooklyn. Fortunately, he wasn't home. They were they left messages. He called me. I said, you can't go home. I said, you got to You can't go home. You got to you know, he had just gotten a new girlfriend. I'm like, basically, you got to move in with your new girlfriend for a while until we figure this out. And we learned who they were after. We figured out who they were after. And fortunately for us, the miracle was they caught that guy just a couple days later. Uh, he'd been on the run. Um, he was a wanted man, top 10 FBI, you know, most wanted. And once they arrested him, what was fascinating was they like completely dropped the ball on us. They were like, they, I think they were so busy patting themselves in the back that they got their man that they never followed up with us because if they had, because they had information, they had been listening to our phone calls and, you know, so they knew what we were doing. They were just like, well, we only were asked to get this guy and we got this guy. So we're moving on, you know? Uh, so it was really fascinating. And over the years, we had a couple other close calls, which I detail in the book, but I don't want to spoil them, spoil them for any potential readers. What did you tell family, friends, like what you did for work, especially with all this money coming in? And I mean, you've, and, the, and then the IRS, I mean, like what? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, good question. Well, you know, <laughs> one of the things that you learn, right? What wasn't they got Al Capone because he uh, did pay his taxes. Yes. Um, so I always paid my taxes um, and I paid, you know, more in taxes because that was, again, that's a line I was not going to cross. I was not going to do anything that, um, that, that that could come back and get me. Um, you know, I told my family basically that um, we that I was um, a headhunter. I was an executive recruiter and I was helping, uh, you know, get people better jobs because one of the things a, a lot of people that use our information um, were executive search firms and consulting firms like, you know, so. Uh, the corn ferries of the world, the McKinsey's of the world, the kind of intelligence that we gather, they oftentimes would utilize for their clients. So sometimes we would work directly for major corporations and sometimes we would work for major executive search firms, and consulting firms, because that information was really valuable for them, too, in terms of winning big business. Oh man, I I am sure that you have you have duped a lot of people in your lifetime, and you've yeah. probably made it a lot very hard for them to trust anyone to this day. Um, <laughs> well, I I hope I hope not too much. I mean, one of the things we prided ourselves on was we 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 described ourselves as uh, being like brain surgeons. Mm -hmm. we, we know we are not brain surgeons, but we are we were like brain surgeons in that we wanted to go in and extract the information that we needed as gingerly and delicately as possible so that the patient, in this case, the person on the other end of the phone, mm -hmm. had no idea, there was no damage, everything, you know, like all they, all, as far as they knew, they just had a really great conversation with the guy in the office in Frankfurt and it was so cool and it was really fun and call me anytime, anytime you need anything, call me again. That was how the you know, nine out of 10 conversations were like that because we were really good at our job, you know, um, and we took it seriously that you were going to you weren't, you know, calling in and having everybody getting upset. And, you know, it just it, you know, we didn't want that, you know, we you know, and also because a lot of times we would go back into these firms again and again. We wanted to make sure that we kept things, you know, clean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as far as uh, I want to actually, um, I'm fascinated by the, the whole, the ruse of it all, but I'm also fascinated with some of the people that you've spent time with that are in Hollywood. Um, mm. I know that, uh, I, I read that, uh, you spent some time with Jennifer Lopez 
And was that uh-huh. a, where was that at? <laughs> uh, that was a that was a blind date, uh, and um, we we went to a Dodgers game, which was pretty funny because at the time I. I was hoping she was into me, and it turned out she was just into baseball. Oh, man. I was um, hoping that, like, if I was you, I'd be like, okay, this is the perfect time to hit me with the kiss cam. Like, right now. <laughs> <laughs> hit us with Rick Red Galore. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I wish. I wish. Uh, I have to tell you, Jennifer Lopez was a lovely and kind, gorgeous uh, – I mean, she really – you know, I mean, I, I, I see why she became a star. I mean, yeah. she – was so magnetic and charismatic and nice. Um, so uh, I'm I'm really glad to see all the success that she's had. I do feel like you know relationship wise she would have done better with me, but hey, you know uh, I'm married now and I'm perfectly happy. So it all worked out. There you go. When you see Ben Affleck on movies and television, do you kind of just like give him a dirty look to yourself? Do you think negative thoughts about him when you see him? Like oh that could have <laughs> <been> me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm happy for him. I'm, I'm glad those two ended up back together. Yeah. I think that's really a cool story. Uh, it's really a cool story. Yeah. And I like him as an actor, too. You know, some people bag on him, but uh, I think he's in a lot of good movies. Was this pre-In Love- in Living Color Fly Girl, Jennifer Lopez, or was this post? Uh, like Selena? That's a great question. I think it was just before In Living Color. Okay. Yes. Wow. Yeah. 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 So she really was not known or recognizable or anything no Mm-mm. she was hollywood you know, she hadn't was like, jaded her yet or anything like that no she was just just a young you know, young beautiful person you know like just like me <laughs> <laughs> and then also um how did you get involved with oj simpson ah, oh, man. my buddy oj yeah jesus uh yes yeah, so, you know actors need money you know and I, my manager calls me one day and he says hey um I got a job, uh, you know, for you in an exercise video. It's three days of work. It's going to pay X, you know, per day. And I'm like, well, the money sounds great, but like exercise video, I'm, I'm the worst dancer ever, ever. <laughs> and he's like, no, 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 no. I'm like, nah, nah. And he goes, no, no, you don't understand. It's an exercise video for guys. It's with OJ Simpson. And I said, OJ Simpson. I love OJ Simpson. You know, I was a big fan of his football career and, and, and his acting career. Yeah. And he didn't, you know, I thought he was pretty good. Capricorn one and Monday night football. And I'm like, Oh, I'm in. And so I go and I show up to the set and, um, get there the first day. And, um, all of a sudden I realized it's like in a dance studio, there's a choreographer and I begin to panic and they set us up. Uh, and it's uh, two women, OJ, the choreographer and me and another guy who was a friend of mine. And, um, we start doing dance moves and the choreographer oh, oh, stops it right away. And he comes over to me. He goes, how did you get hired for this? What, you know, what the <laughs> hell? And OJ says, Oh, Hey, 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 Rob's making me look good. Rob's making me look good. He's fine. <laughs> and because OJ vouched for me, the guy couldn't fire me because he was going to fire me. But uh, because I was so bad at the moves that I was making OJ look good. And he wanted that because he was nervous about not looking good. Oh, video. wow. <laughs> so, and somehow that bonded us. So for the rest of the couple of days we worked together, everything OJ was like my buddy, my pal. At one point he says, Hey Rob, I, I want to show you the new pilot. I just shot for NBC. Come here, come here. And he takes me to the side, pulls out a, 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 a VCR, you know, remember VCR. Oh tapes. yeah. And he pops it in a, a, a you know VCR player, and he puts on this like a little promo for this um, pilot that he had just shot called Frogman. 
And he explains to me that his character in it is a knife expert. Oh, my God. You gotta, <laughs> yeah, oh, my God. Okay. Right? You can't make this stuff up. <laughs> right? You cannot make this stuff up. So I was like, oh, cool, man. You know, in my head, I'm like, OJ's going to get me a job on Frogman. He loves me. And, you know, and it's going to go to series. And I'm going to be a regular. and We're going to be pals. And this is great. Oh, my God. You know, and everybody, my buddy, the, the other guy in the, the video, his name was Mike. Mike said, what's up with you and OJ, you know, like, and, um, so you can imagine my surprise a few days later when he's driving in the Bronco down the four Oh five on the run after these, you know, uh, horrific, uh, you know, murders, uh-huh. um, and, you know, you know, taking my chances of a role on Frogman with him. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was a really an insane experience and then it gets crazier. So, you know, then, you know, and this is back in the day when we're before social media. So the media finds out that we're in this video before uh, the murders and they want to know what OJ was like on the set. And it turns out he was sexually harassing this woman, which I witnessed. So they're calling me. They want me to go on entertainment tonight and they want me to go on all of these shows. And, you know, I, I was trying to be a serious actor. I didn't want to be like Kato Kalin, you know, yeah, going yeah. on there and trying to make money on your 15 minutes of celebrity. So I said no. And instead I called the district attorney and I said, look, you know, I, I witnessed him behaving in a aggressive manner and in an inappropriate manner with this woman who, and this gets even crazier, who was like a spitting image of Nicole Brown Simpson, um, his ex-wife that he murdered. I mean, you can't, wow. again, you can't make this up. She, now, of course, at the time when I was doing the video with her, I didn't know she resembled Nicole Brown Simpson because I didn't know who Nicole Brown Simpson was. But after when you're seeing the pictures on TV all the time, I went, oh, my God, this woman it was like a ringer for his wife. She was beautiful, buxom, blonde, you know. Anyway, so I called the district attorney. I said, I have information. They never called me back. And then, of course, in the trial, the exercise video they did was introduced into evidence because part of O.J.'s defense was he was so arthritic from his football career that there was no way he could have murdered one person, let alone two people. Um, and, um, and then the video was brought in to show that he was perfectly capable. And I'm here to tell you, you know, I was a 30 year old guy, six foot one, 185 pounds, the best shape of my life. And OJ would have, you know, if we'd been in like a, a, in a cage match, I would have been tapping out going, somebody please help me before this guy kills me. Mm-hmm. Right. Because he was just a big, strong dude. Um, and then, you know, like again, OJ just kept popping up. A few years ago, they did an OJ series on FX with uh, Cuba Gooding playing OJ um, and a bunch of other really great actors in it. And they recreated the exercise video in the <laughs> TV series, which means that an actor was hired to play me. Oh, that's awesome. I'm sorry. Yeah. That's that's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. It was that's hilarious. a hell of a My story. Wife, I, wasn't wa- I wasn't watching the series because I'd had enough of OJ, but my wife was watching it. Yeah. She's screaming, you know, Robert, get in here, get in here. I come in. She plays the thing. And I literally fell onto the ground. I was laughing so hard. <laughs> How did he do? How did the guy do? Did, were you able to critique the guy? <laughs> like... <laughs> Thank you for that. I really appreciate that opening because I'm very disappointed. Very disappointed. <laughs> he wore a red headband. I never would have worn a red headband. Okay. I mean, it was just, it just was crazy, the red headband. Uh and, he, and why he wouldn't call me to under, want to know what I was thinking of yeah. those moments. 
very – I mean this guy was not serious about his work. Absolutely. If you're serious about your craft, you need, to, you need that tutelage from the guy who is actually there. Like yeah. what's, what's what you your motivation? You I can yeah. tell you your motivation is to take off that red fucking headband, buddy, because I would exactly. never do that. No. <laughs> it was embarrassing. <laughs> so you have a hack play you but a hell of a story to tell for the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I know, right? Who, who knew that that day or those days – we're, we're going to be talking about them, whatever. I don't even know how many years. It was. Yeah. 20, 20, some 28, 20, you know. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you. I mean, obviously you couldn't have known that what was going to happen was going to happen. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sure you had zero clue of that, but looking back on it, does anything ever like pop up? Like, wow, he was kind of in a weird mood that day or anything. I mean, I doubt that's probably the case. You know, he probably, he probably compartmentalize pretty well, but I have to ask. Well, the, the way he treated the, the blonde woman, the blonde that, dancer yeah. in the video, yeah. And and by the way, I went to I went to her at one point and I said, "Look," because he was saying things and he was making like sexual innuendo. And I said, "Hey," I said, "You know," uh, I said, "You know, are you okay?" Because you know we can call the Screen Actors Guild and we can have a union representative come onto the set and sit here and 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 he'll have to stop that stuff. And she said, "You know, no, no, no." And I'm sure that. For her, she was trying not to make waves. You know, maybe she was hoping she'd get a part on in the new Frogman series, and so she was she was just trying to roll with it. But uh, I'm really hopeful that something like that would never ever happen on a set today, and it certainly would not happen in the open. I mean, he was doing it in front of the crew. I mean, they have it on video. Your uh, your listeners can go to OJ Simpson exercise video outtakes, and they can hear all of the terrible things that he was saying. Wow. He was joking about domestic violence. Wow. Wow. That's wild. Now, uh, the book, has anyone reached you about optioning this for possibly like a, a TV series or, or a movie? Because I'm, you know, I'm thinking, you know, it's it's very much like Wolf of Wall Street and Catch Me If You Can, which are yeah. – Two great stories, two amazing stories. And I mean, uh, both were made by incredible directors, Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg. I mean, is this something that people are looking at? Because I think that this would be incredible to see like on the big screen. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. And, and it's so cool that you mentioned Catch Me If You Can, because Frank Abagnale, who was the author of that book, because um, the movie's based on his book. Um, he read my book. Um, I did not know Mr. Abagnale, um, um, but he flipped over the book and he offered to write a blurb, which is on the cover. I, I read um, that. Because, yeah. Yeah. Because he, he loved it. He loved it. And he's been amazing. He's recommended me for speaking uh, gigs. Um, you know, I, I've gone up to I've traveled and gone up to San Francisco for conferences and I've done other things because he recommended me. He's really a great guy. I still haven't met him, but he's been really a huge supporter and as soon as Frank Abagnale wrote that blurb, as you can imagine, uh, people's ears pricked up in Hollywood because they're like, wait a second, mm -hmm. if Frank Abagnale is saying this is a great story, we got to look at this. And so sure enough, a production company reached out and um, and ruses in development for a TV series. Oh, fantastic. Awesome. Oh, man. I was yeah. I was thinking I was hoping Leo would make it a trifecta since he starred in the other two. And, yeah. 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 <laughs> well, and it's funny because somebody said, uh, you know, who do you want to play you? And I said, well, I don't know who I want to play me, but my father's a big part of the book because my father's kind of like the, the heart of the book, the anchor of the book. And I'm like, man, if we could, if Leo DiCaprio could play my father, that would be incredible, you know. Oh yeah, because uh, the father's one of the is one of the main characters, you know. So yeah, so they they'd have to go with like a, a younger 
up and yeah. coming oh, yeah, actor. Yeah. It would be, you know, it would be me at 25, something yeah. like that. And then, the, and then the dad would be, you know, 50. And I'm sure Leo is, is at least 50, probably in his early 50s. Yeah. Oh, they need to have you walk onto that show as <laughs> something, as something, you know? Play your dad. There you go. Play your dad. Maybe, yeah. Dan, that's a, funny you said that. Uh, the, the production company actually did bring that up about me playing the dad. And while I'm open to the idea, I think at the end of the day, when you're doing a series, you want to bring in as many, um, you know, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, name actors, because it's just going to give your show more attention. And, and, you know, if it was a smaller part, maybe, but the, like I said, the part of my father, it's a big part in the book. Um, cause he's kind of constantly, you know, telling me, you know, cause eventually he finds out what I'm doing and he's not happy about it. And so he's a real, like, you know, moral voice, you know, um, you know, a lot like, uh, interestingly enough, I think it's Rob Reiner plays, um, uh, Jordan Belfort's father in The Wolf of Wall Street, right? Isn't it Rob Reiner that is constantly worried? He, he's like the accountant who comes in and he's he's worried about, you know, them cooking the books and getting in trouble. I believe so. Yeah. That's a shame. I mean, I totally get that because, you know, you do, like you're saying, you do want to have um, as many big names as possible in this to make sure that it's successful. But no one can imitate their old man like the son, right? Maybe, yeah, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's is it, so. This is in very early development. Do you have a screen? Do they have a screen uh, like a like a, not a screenwriter, but a, a writer for the showrunner? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They know they they have a showrunner. The showrunner is fantastic. I love awesome. them. Um, we've basically got the first season uh, written, or you know, or you know, you know, like you know, I don't. They call it. Um, there's a name for it. you know I'm a, I'm a I'm a book writer not a, a screenwriter so there's a name for it but you know they've they've got like the the book bible um or the the you know the show bible which is kind of mapping out the whole first season all the characters all the this all the that um and so we're just kind of you know you know so yeah it's pretty far along I'm hoping that it I ho- I hope it's an incredible series because like this book will blow up if that's the mm-hmm. case and then you know then you're going to paperback and Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Just amazing. Yeah. 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 I uh, will have to ask one more question. I mean, I, I just want to ask this one because if I don't, I'm going to regret it. But uh, I understand that you did have some uh, acting time on Deep Space Nine. Ah, yes. Hold on. Hold on. There we go. Oh, nice. That's incredible. Yeah. Huh? That's awesome. That That's me as Borad. And uh, my time on Deep Space Nine was not that extensive, but for some reason, they selected me to do a trading card as a Cardassian. I guess the you know they needed a Cardassian trading card, and so they made a uh, a card of my character, um, which apparently you know there are three types of trading cards. There's uh, common, uh, rare, and then like some other level, like you know uh, you know you know or no no it's common, uncommon, and rare. And my card is rare. And so it goes for like a whopping three dollars on the internet. And <laughs> apparently, that's 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 a lot of money for that card. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know, so I did this episode of Deep Space Nine. I think it's called The Defiant, and um, a lot of people seem to think it's one of the best episodes of Deep Space Nine ever. I can't take very much credit for it because you know I just played like the you know like the number two Cardassian in the episode. Um, but it was a blast. I love Star Trek, so it was really amazing to you know have a you know be a small part of it and uh i'm here to tell you that getting into cardassian makeup is some serious ordeal um i think it was 
maybe four hours to get it all on. Um, and then, and then what surprised me, it was about two hours to get it off. Um, and so the, you know, when you're shooting, you know, the, and when you shoot on a TV show, you episode, you know, you're, you're there for the whole day. Uh, you know, usually shooting is 12 to 14 hours. So you add another five, six hours for makeup. And I mean, and I was there for, you know, 20 hour days. It was, it was the longest I've ever worked consecutively in the, in my time in the movie business. And, uh, it was, it was pretty intense, you know, because, and you're, you the, the stuff is heavy as hell too. You know, that, that's why the, I guess the Cardassian is so strong carrying around all that makeup. <laughs> <laughs> How did you handle the makeup? Was it troublesome for you with all the prosthetic? You know, it wasn't so bad. I, it, other than the fact that it was, it was very heavy. The costume right. was heavy. Yeah. The makeup was heavy. Um, you know, you had to be smart. Like you could not be outside in the sun. You, like, you, you know, you had to make sure you stayed in air conditioned places because obviously you start sweating and then your makeup's going to go to hell. Um, so, you know, you, you, you basically kind of had to just sit around, uh, and, and wait, um, as opposed to, you know, normally if you're on a set and you're in a regular costume, I mean, obviously you're, you're thinking about your scene that's coming, but you know, if you, if you know your scene isn't for six hours, you know, you're going to go talk to somebody, you're going to meet somebody, you're going to chat with somebody, you know, whatever. Um, but in that makeup, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't a lot of that going on because even, even talking was, was, you know, a, you know, Cardassians are not known for long monologues, right? It's kind of, you know, you know, very, you know, kind of rough, rough, uh, you know, very you know, direct. They're, a, they're a, yeah, they're a, you know, they're like, you know, the Romulans, they're a, they're a, they're a tough, tough breed. So, I'm really curious about like the book is going to have all these stories. It's going to go through the ruse. I'm sure it's, you're going to be talking about OJ. You're going to be talking about George Clooney. You're going to be talking about Jayla, all this. And how is this? Is, is everything going to make it into this series? Is it going to be bouncing back and forth between your acting career as well as what's going on with the corporate ruse? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. It's going to, you know, it's going to go into both. I think, you know, uh, you know, they, in Hollywood, the term is the A story and the B story. Sure. So the A story is going to be the corporate spying. That's going to be the main focus of the show. And then the B story, of course, is that this guy's trying to be an actor and he's trying to make it. And he's having all of these interactions with all of these famous people while he's doing this crazy, gnarly spying. What's so cool about that is like that sounds like a fiction story. I mean, it sounds like fiction, but like. It's going to say inspired by a true story, which is mind blowing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I tell people all the time. You know, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a true story about lying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm telling you, the, 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 the book is just like I'm telling you, it's just, it's just layers and layers and layers and layers of incredible Aww. stories. So, um, well, thank you, I appreciate that, man. I, I, I'm so excited for you, and, and, um, I mean, I want, I, I want all of our listeners to go to your website, uh, www. Uh, buy a copy of this book. Is, is this something that they can listen to on Audible, or is that something that's? Yeah, uh, sure. Oh, yeah. there you go. Like I know, and I narrated the I narrated the audio book myself because it's obviously it's my story, and 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 I was an actor, so I felt comfortable with that. And uh, that's my favorite version because you know it's me really talking about the you know what really happened. Yeah. Um, no, and you've got a great voice for it. So I was just going to say, you really do have a great voice. I'm going to have to listen to that for sure. 
Yeah, I can. Oh, I, <laughs> I'm about ready to tell you. I'm about ready to spill the beans on all my secrets right now. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, yeah, definitely. Uh, Audible is I, a lot of people. If they're listening to this, they're listening to a podcast, and so a lot of people drive or if they're at work and 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 they listen to podcasts. I know we've got a lot of mail carriers and people like that that just like. You know, they're doing these jobs. They want to listen to something very cool. So this uh, definitely listen to Ruse or, or buy the book. I know a lot of people like the physical copies. They like to a lot of I know a lot of people like to read their books in the in the tub. This is this is yeah. perfect. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, um, for your listeners, I wrote this book during covid. Um, and so I really wanted to write something that was fun. Um, so Ruse is a page turner. It reads like a spy novel. Um, it, it, it's really fast moving and, and, uh, I, pr- I promise they won't be disappointed. Absolutely. I, I've had a blast talking with you. I, I didn't want, is there anything else that you'd like our listeners to know, um, before we, before we hop off here? No, I, 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 look, this was, this was a blast. I think I, this is the hardest I've laughed in any podcast that I've done. So thank you for that. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you so much. No, um, yeah, I, I cannot wait to post this episode for people to listen and that definitely please buy the book, buy the audible and, uh, you will not be disappointed. And I'm looking forward, uh, for you having more success and then also looking forward to the series. So that's going to be very exciting. So. Well, when the series comes out, hopefully you'll invite me back. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes, definitely. Um, you're invited back anytime. Absolutely. Fantastic. All right. Thank you, Thank Robert. You, gentlemen. Thank you, Robert. It's a pleasure to meet you. Uh, what a pleasure, guys. This is this. I think this is the highlight of all the shows and podcasts and interviews I've done. This is my favorite. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Hopefully he doesn't say this to everybody, Dan. I'm telling you. I know. I'm I don't know. To get my hopes up. This might be another <laughs> ruse. This might be a ruse, Dan. How can I believe this guy? You know what I mean? He's such a liar. <laughs> I, he hangs out with OJ and shit. We can't trust this guy, Brian. Maybe his real voice was that Christoph Waltz voice he used Could earlier. Be. Could be. Who's oh, the real yeah. Robert? Yeah. <laughs> Will the r- real Robert please stand up? <laughs>